This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free online resource for health professionals' education. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Welcome to World Shared Practice Forum. I'm John Arnold, a professor of anesthesia and pediatrics at the Harvard Medical School and an intensive care physician at Boston Children's Hospital. Thank you for joining us for this special session. You'll be watching a rebroadcast of a presentation made by Dr. Bob Kazmarek on November 23rd, 2015. Sadly, Bob passed away on April 1st of this year. Many of you knew Bob Kazmarek, and many of you knew him well, which is a testament to the many collaborators and the fact that when you collaborated with Bob, you became his friend. Some of you didn't know Bob. Let me introduce you. Although he was born in Cleveland, Bob was really a Chicago guy. He did all of his training in Chicago, and like many Chicagoans, he found it difficult to leave. He actually began his career in respiratory care as an oxygen orderly at the Evangelical Hospital in Chicago. He practiced as a respiratory therapist in Chicago area hospitals and ultimately completed his BS at the University of Chicago in 1972. Bob was a big believer in baccalaureate-trained respiratory therapists, and this allowed him to pursue graduate studies. He was ultimately awarded a master's and a PhD from Northwestern University. I learned from reviewing his CV that his field of study was psychology. Interestingly, I think this really prepared him to function very effectively as a leader and mentor in his subsequent career. He was recruited to the Mass General in 1984 as director of respiratory care, a position that he held until he passed. He grew the program over three and a half decades to one of the largest and most highly regarded departments in the country. He was promoted to professor of anesthesia at Harvard Medical School in 2002, from oxygen orderly to full professor with 350 publications in between. Bob was the first respiratory therapist to be promoted to professor at any American medical school. He's been described as the most impactful respiratory therapist in the history of the field. Yes, Bob was a GOAT, greatest of all time. As a highly accomplished clinical trialist, Bob tackled many of the most complex questions regarding optimizing ventilatory support. There was no quandary he was unwilling to systematically address. In his laboratory at the MGH, he carefully examined the interactions between mechanical ventilation and the lung with a focus on identifying the path to lung protection during mechanical support. As you read his list of publications, you see a virtual parade of the most relevant clinical questions in the area of lung recruitment, lung protection, and innovative modes of respiratory support. He's had a worldwide impact on the field of mechanical ventilation and has mentored and or collaborated with hundreds of us around the globe. All of this is discoverable by reading Bob's CV and reviewing his publications. Allow me to share with you my personal reflections on Bob Kazmarek. First of all, Bob was exceedingly humble, an unusual characteristic in the competitive world of academic medicine in which he lived. He was also disarmingly generous and shared thoughts, expert insight, and countless manuscript revisions with anyone lucky enough to collaborate with him. Bob was incredibly gentle. And was, this was quite unnerving, especially when facing off with him in a pro-con debate in front of an audience. His gentle manner was a reflection of the deep respect that he displayed when interacting with colleagues, collaborators, students, and mentees. Most alarming 
Bob could be in absolute disagreement with you, and yet displayed his respect, kindness, and humility as he methodically dissected the differences between your views. Finally, Bob really loved Peep. Peep was the answer to everything. In fact, you may have noticed that his initials are RMK. That would stand for Recruitment Maneuver Kasmeric. Now, the video you are about to see contains Bob's views on patient ventilator synchrony, which has to be one of the least popular lecture topics for those of us in the, in the field. But when I sheepishly asked him to review this topic for the World Shared Practice Forum, true to form, Bob took on the task in a methodical and logical way. If you've not seen the presentation previously, pay close attention. Bob has a remarkable way of unpacking quite complex concepts. If you have seen the video before, you should also pay careful attention. Any presentation by Bob always has a second or third layer that may take a while to understand. Again, thank you for joining us for this special session. Welcome. I'm John Arnold. I'm a professor of anesthesia and pediatrics at the Harvard Medical School. Uh, I'm the director of the Department of Respiratory Care at Boston Children's Hospital. Today, it's an absolute thrill to welcome Dr. Robert Kasmerick to the World Shared Practices audience. Bob is a longtime collaborator and friend. Um, he's a longstanding director of respiratory care services at the Massachusetts General Hospital. He's authored over 150 publications uh, really hitting the hot points in mechanical ventilation. Today, Bob is going to speak to us about patient ventilator synchrony. Bob, welcome. Thanks, John. So as you know, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about patient ventilator synchrony today. Clearly an issue that I feel that uh, the staff at the bedside doesn't pay as much attention to. I mean, we pay, we've paid enormous attention to issues of lung injury caused by pressure being excessive, volume being excessive. But I hope to be able to demonstrate that this is an even more common issue that people need to pay a little bit more attention to than they have in the past. So before I start, let me go through my uh, conflict of interest statement. I'm a consultant for Covidian. I've received research grants from Werner Medical and from Covidian, although we won't be talking specifically about equipment, but we will be discussing some modes of ventilation, I assume, as we continue to do this. Clearly, we see patients who are struggling overtly, and from the hallway, you can tell that they are fighting the ventilator, but asynchrony tends to be a little more subtle than that in most of the presentations that you see at the bedside. And I've gone through my classification, which I think is pretty similar to what most others would classify as a general groupings of asynchrony, that is flow asynchrony, inadequate flow to meet the patient's demand, again, regardless of mode of ventilation, trigger asynchrony, which comes in many types. The most common we see, as you know, is double triggering or mistriggering, cycling asynchrony, implying that the ventilator and the patient are out of sync from an inspiratory time perspective. That is, either the ventilator ends the breath before the patient is ready, or the patient exceeds the amount of time of inspiration that the ventilator is actually providing. And then lastly, mode asynchrony. Have we chosen the correct mode for the given patient? Is this patient having a difficult time acclimating to that mode? And should we consider potentially another approach to ventilating that patient? Bob, that's a great introduction. Um, 
but help us understand clearly each type of asynchrony and how important it is. So before we get into the specifics, I always like to go through this discussion. Any mode of conventional ventilation that we have available, we basically have four different variables that we can set. We can set pressure, we can set flow, we can set volume, and we can set time. And I'd argue that the more of those that you specifically set and force the patient to comply to, the greater the likelihood you're gonna have asynchrony. So I believe volume assist control is generally problematic for the spontaneously breathing patient. Pressure assist control, as you notice, less issues because you only control two variables, pressure and time. Pressure support, even less likely to cause difficulty with the patient interacting with the ventilator because we only control one variable, pressure. And the two modes of ventilation that, to me, are modes of the future, PAV and NAVA, we don't control any of those variables. As you're well aware, with PAV and NAVA, the ventilator follows the lead of the patient instead of with every other mode of ventilation, the patient being forced to comply with the way we choose to set the mechanical ventilator. As a result, at least uh, literature shows that there is much less asynchrony with PAV and NAVA as compared to the other classic modes of mechanical ventilation. I like also to use this slide from Magda Yunus's original article on uh, proportional assist ventilation, which I've modified a little bit, added NAVA, you know, to that slide. It depicts the relationship between what the ventilator does and what the patient is doing during assisted ventilation. Now, there's no question, if we're talking about controlled ventilation, pretty much any mode of ventilation can be equally applied to the patient. We can target pressures and volumes and rates and times, no matter which one we choose. But when a patient is breathing spontaneously, I think it's important to realize the variability in the interaction that exists depending upon the mode that you choose. Notice on this graphic that the relationship between volume ventilation for pressure and patient effort is an inverse one. In other words, the more effort the patient makes, the less pressure the ventilator must apply, inversely supporting the patient. You can take a lung model, and I can easily change the level of effort on that lung model so there's no pressure generated during that breath because all the effort is performed by the patient. In my opinion, clearly not the best approach to managing a patient. Pressure-targeted ventilation, pressure support and pressure assist control. As you note, we have a straight line there. There is a consistent set pressure regardless of patient effort. A little better scenario, but still, there is no variability in the amount of pressure that's applied based on the amount of effort that the patient's putting forth. Whereas PAV and NAVA, you see a direct relationship between the two. Obviously, what we set is essentially the slope of that relationship. For a small patient effort, do we get a lot of response from the patient? Or from a small patient effort, do we get a small response for the patient? As you know, we can set the percentage or the amount of pressure that's applied with these two modes to offset or balance some of the patient effort. But in all cases with PAV and NAVA, the relationship is a direct one. Increased effort from the patient, 
increased pressure applied from the mechanical ventilator, and as a result, less likelihood for asynchrony than what we would see with the classic modes of ventilation. So we pretty much can define, regardless of whether we use a volume or a pressure-targeted approach, the situations where we can anticipate there may be asynchrony, if flow is inadequate, if inspiratory time does not match the patients, if tidal volume is excessive or tidal volume is too small, if we develop auto-peep, if we don't set PEEP properly, if we don't set sensitivity properly, if we choose a mode of ventilation that the patient simply cannot uh, acclimate to, we would expect that there'll be some level of asynchrony that would occur. We'd like to turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask you a question. In your answer, please first state your city and country location. The first question is, what modes of mechanical ventilation are most frequently used in your pediatric ICU? And the second question is, what types of patient ventilator asynchrony are most frequently encountered in your pediatric ICU? So I'd like to start with an old slide from John Marini. John discussed the issue of flow asynchrony in volume-targeted ventilation, and unfortunately, we still see the same thing in many cases today when patients who are actively breathing spontaneously with a significant inspiratory effort and are managed in volume ventilation. As you'll notice on the top graphic, what John did with this, walked into a patient's room, recorded the airway pressure versus time waveform, then sedated the patient to apnea and re-recorded the airway pressure time waveform. Well, when you look at airway pressure versus time, underneath that curve, we have work. And as you'll notice on the top graphic, the solid line represents controlled ventilation, whereas a dotted line represents assisted. So if during an assisted breath, all of the work were still being provided by the ventilator, we should see the controlled breath and the assisted breath having the same area under the curve. But what John found out, as we see today on the bottom, is that's not true, that frequently, we don't see the flow meeting the overall patient demand. And we have an area, sometimes a very large area of patient effort that can exceed the amount of work actually provided by the ventilator. And look at the amount of pressure change that was necessary, the deflection of that airway pressure curve below baseline, and the amount of time that it took for that airway pressure curve to return back to baseline all indicative of the patient having a significant amount of effort, and everybody would classify this as a trigger delay form of asynchrony as well as a flow asynchrony circumstance. Less and less we see issues with large tidal volumes, as you know, because of the work of the ARDSnet and other, ones, other groups. But what I often find is that Staff at the bedside don't always match the inspiratory time provided by the ventilator with the patient's neuroinspiratory time. And of course, if they don't match, we're gonna end up with some level of asynchrony. Another relatively old slide, but it nicely depicts the relationship between flow and inspiratory time in a single patient going from a very asynchronous gas delivery in A to a very coordinated gas delivery in E. 
So this is one patient, and as we go from A to B to C to D to E, what you'll notice is that inspiratory time gets shorter and peak flow gets higher. As we look on the, the uh, vertical axis, the first, first row is airway pressure, second row is flow, volume, the raw EMG signal of the diaphragm, the integrated EMG signal of the diaphragm to represent uh, an area of diaphragmatic work, and then the esophageal pressure turned upside down to represent muscular effort exerted by this patient. If you notice in A, the concavity in the airway pressure waveform and the relatively low flow rate and the length of the inspiratory time. Also note that volume is constant. There's no change in tidal volume going from A to E. The only variables that are changing are time and flow rate. And if we look at the indices of patient work, clear difference from A to E. And if we look at the airway pressure waveform, a dramatic change from A to E. What I try to get staff to do when you look at volume-targeted ventilation, if the airway pressure waveform deviates significantly what, from what you have in your mind as the ideal waveform, you've got some level of asynchrony, and you've got to deal with adjusting the flow and the inspiratory time to better match things. And in many cases, as you see here, you can match the two to improve gas delivery during volume-targeted ventilation. In pressure-targeted ventilation, the ventilator is designed to provide enough flow to rapidly achieve whatever pressure we set. So if the patient pulls more, the ventilator provides a greater flow. But what you see in this graphic is a depiction of different levels of rise time, rapid, moderate, and a slow rise time, which just does change the configuration of airway pressure at the onset of the breath. And we can use that to better match you know, flow delivery early in the breath in pressure-targeted ventilation. So let's kind of switch a little bit and talk about issues of triggering. Um, if we get away from the flow asynchrony that we see regularly in volume ventilation, the two types of asynchrony that are really common is double triggering and mistriggering. And double triggering has really showed up to be much more frequent in volume-targeted ventilation after we've started to be more lung protective. We set a tidal volume of 6 ml, sometimes with a relatively short inspiratory time, and that tidal volume of 6 ml is not meeting the patient's demand or the patient's inspiratory time exceeds that which we've now set on the ventilator. And as you see in the three highlighted breaths, the double triggering ends up with a breath that has twice the tidal volume. There's no expiratory phase there, as you'll notice, compared to the other breaths that are not highlighted. So the patient has received, on those three breaths that are highlighted, a tidal volume of 12 ml per kilo. Well, this group looked at 20 ARDS patients, all set with a tidal volume of 6 ml per kilo of predicted body weight, and as you'll note, had a high level of asynchrony with a median tidal volume of 10 ml per kilo. And what they had to do was adjust tidal volume or sedate the patient in order to attempt to correct the process. More recent group looked at the same thing, 50 patients with significant double triggering. At least 
of the breasts in this study were double-triggered breasts and volume assist control. And they looked at a number of different interventions, as you see there. Sedate the patient, change to pressure support, increase inspiratory time, or do nothing. Well, obviously, do nothing did nothing. If you look at the graphic on the left, it shows a comparison before and after, and of course, no difference in the amount of uh, double triggering. The middle graphic indicates the application of sedation, some improvement, but nowhere near the improvement that was made when inspiratory time was lengthened or the mode was changed from volume assist control to pressure support, giving the patient flexibility to, to adjust their tidal volume, to adjust their inspiratory time. And the bottom graphic simply gives you an idea of the change from baseline with the three approaches. And you note that the change in ventilator setting had the greatest global impact on the level of uh, double triggering. The one that I think is the most common form of asynchrony is missed triggering. And this one is a little more difficult to pick up. In this graphic, you very clearly see it because the investigators put a pneumatac between the endotracheal tube and the Y of the ventilator circuit. So you eliminated the dampening effect of the full ventilator circuit. So if we look at this graphic at the bottom, you'll notice the ventilator's response with the up arrows compared to the patient efforts with the down arrows. So here you see a two to, two to one to three to one ratio between efforts made by the patient and response from the mechanical ventilator. Clearly a circumstance that has dramatically increased patient's ventilatory drive and of course sets up a significant level of asynchrony between this patient and the mechanical ventilator. Almost always mistriggering is a result of some level of auto peep. Whether it's auto peep that's created as a result of intrinsic lung disease or it's auto peep created based on the way we've chosen to mechanically ventilate that patient. Patients cannot decompress the auto peep on their first effort and there's a missed trigger. They try again, they can decompress a little more because exhalation decreased the auto peep, but still a missed trigger. And on the third breath, they're able to trigger the ventilator, but because of the large tidal volume or the existence of the airflow limitation, they go back through that same cycle, repeating itself on a regular basis as you see, as you see outlined in this particular you know, graphic presentation. The reason for that, as I think probably everybody is well aware nowadays, is that auto-peep is a phenomena that the ventilator doesn't recognize unless we provide an end expiratory pause. So that even though the patient may have to decompress, as you see in this example, 15 centimeters of auto-peep at the alveolar level, the ventilator doesn't notice that that's present during the normal course of ventilation, as you see in the middle example, example B. Until we provide that end expiratory pause, as you see in example C, there is not equilibration of the auto peep throughout the patient ventilator circuit and no indication of it on the manometer. Now that works great to do that, 
in patients under controlled mechanical ventilation. But we're talking about patients spontaneously breathing. So we have to look for other indications that the patient has auto-peep because we can't get a good end expiratory pause if the patient is actively breathing. And most ventilators will abort the measurement if they sense an inspiratory effort on the part of the patient. We'd like to turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask you a question. In your answer, please first state your city and country location. The question is, how does the staff in your pediatric ICU determine the presence and or degree of auto-peep in a mechanically ventilated but spontaneously breathing patient? So what I try to get staff to do, if there is uh, any indication that auto-peep might be present, to carefully count the patient's respiratory rate and compare it to the ventilator's respiratory rate, putting their hand on the patient's diaphragm and actually counting diaphragmatic contractions. And whenever diaphragmatic contractions exceed the ventilator response rate, almost always it's auto-peep that is the actual cause of that particular problem. The other circumstance that auto-peep occurs is in patients who we set the ventilator to produce too large a tidal volume. Laurent Burchard's group nicely demonstrated this in 12 patients, none of which had intrinsic lung disease. All of these patients were without any type of intrinsic problems. The issue was that tidal volume delivered during pressure support was excessive. As you'll notice, patients received a tidal volume of 10 ml per kilo, and that resulted in mistriggering at a greater than 10% rate. As soon as they dropped the pressure support to 13, producing a normal tidal volume of about 6 ml per kilo, the ineffective triggering was dis disappeared. Patient's respiratory rate changed a little bit, but there was no more mistriggering that occurred. So we can correct this in a couple of different ways. In the patient without intrinsic lung disease, we can adjust the way we deliver mechanical ventilation to avoid excessive tidal volumes. And in the patient who has chronic pulmonary disease, where we have dynamic airflow obstruction, we can apply PEEP. Now, that has to be done very carefully in a very slow, meticulous manner. But if we apply that PEEP in that slow manner and continue to reassess the patient's respiratory rate and the ventilator response rate and stop as soon as we get to the PEEP level that every effort on the part of the patient triggers the mechanical ventilator, we usually have an effective solution to this particular type of asynchrony. The next form of asynchrony I'd like to focus on is cycle asynchrony. Bigger problem in pressure-targeted ventilation than in volume-targeted ventilation, but as I said before, a circumstance where the ventilator and the patient's inspiratory time is not equivalent. This old study by Martin Tobin nicely illustrated it. He took a number of patients, placed uh, EMG electrodes on, on the abdominal muscles, and measured flow and pressure simultaneously. And you'll notice in a dotted vertical line that the patient ended inspiration and began active exhalation in the middle of the pressure support breath. 
the patient was able to end the pressure support breath by that increase in airway pressure. You see the active exhalation and the circle around the peak that exists at the end of the airway pressure graphic, implying that the patient's contraction of their abdominal muscles, increased airway pressure, and the breath ended based on the secondary cycling mechanism. Remember, with pressure support, and as far as I know, on every mechanical ventilator on the market, whether it's an invasive or non-invasive ventilator, uh, pressure support breaths end when flow decreases to some either set or predefined level. All of the newer ventilators give us flexibility now to adjust this to make it easier to avoid the circumstance that I just depicted. But in addition to pressure support ending by the achievement of a flow, it also ends by an increase in airway pressure. Every ventilator manufacturer does this increase a little different. Some do a percentage of the airway pressure set. Some have a fixed level of pressure above the set level. But once that pressure threshold is hit, the ventilator will cycle to the expiratory phase. And the third level is an increased inspiratory time. So when I see this type of phenomena occurring, that I have a circumstance where airway pressure increases above set level, my response is that I need to change the flow criteria to end the breath. So in this case, I'm assuming the flow criteria was a very low flow, and the patient chose to begin exhalation at a relatively high flow rate. As you'll notice, all the way to the left, it's set at 10%. The peak flow delivered was uh, 80 liters, so when it dropped to eight, the breath ended. In the middle, we set it at 25, so when the peak flow dropped to 20 liters, the breath ended. And the last one, when the peak flow dropped to 50% of the breath, or 40 liters, the breath ended. So with my example that I showed, I'd slowly increase this percentage until I eliminated that spike and the patient and the ventilator ended the breath simultaneously. So Bob, you've convinced me and I think our audience that asynchrony is very common, but how important is it? Are there any outcome data you can share with us to demonstrate the significance of asynchrony in a clinical population? So let me transition now and spend the last part of our discussion talking about why this is important. Let me begin with these two articles published a few years ago by the first one by, by Laurent Burchard's group and the second one by Nick Hill's group. Both of them looked at a series of mechanically ventilated patients, and in this case, in both mostly patients who had uh, volume-targeted ventilation-related asynchronies, but looking at the asynchrony index, that is, what percentage of the breaths that the patient took would be classified as asynchrony. And in both, the higher that index, the greater either the length of mechanical ventilation or the length of ICU stay. That patients who had a high level of asynchrony, there was an association with longer periods of time in the ICU or longer periods of time mechanically ventilated. Unfortunately, not a randomized trial, so can't look at cause and effect, but clearly an association between length of time of ventilation and levels of asynchrony. 
So, Bob, you've given us some snapshots on the frequency of asynchrony in uh, several patient populations. But what about a bigger view? Is there a bigger picture, a, a panorama of the importance of asynchrony in a large ventilated population? Let me talk about a paper that I was fortunate enough to be part of. I've worked with Louis Blanc, as you well know, from Barcelona for a number of years. And Louis has developed what he makes reference to as a better care system. It's a computerized program that can be put on the backbone of your, you know, internet in the, uh, in the university, or it can be put on a lap laptop computer and applied to the single patient. What it does is it records and in real time analyzes every single breath that the patient receives. And as you know, it can look at mistriggering, double triggering, long cycling, short cycling, automatically calculates an asynchrony index, identifies air trapping, identifies excessive secretions. If the patient is under controlled mechanical ventilation, can identify plateau pressure, and it will identify mode of ventilation. So what we reported on was 50 patients, 7,000 hours of mechanical ventilation, and almost 9 million breaths that the system analyzed on these patients. And this just to give you a point of reference of what the screen actually looks at. So it can take the signals from the mechanical ventilator. It can also take signals from the monitor. The analysis is in real time. So as you see, it gives you alarms visually that identify the type of asynchrony that exists. It gives you on the right side some of the uh, parameters on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. And it can also tell you what the percentage of a particular asynchrony is every hour, every five minutes, every minute, whatever, the interval that you have an interest in looking at that level of asynchrony. The 50 patients that we presented on were average ICU patients. I point this out because, as you'll notice, only one patient had chronic obstructive lung disease. Many will associate asynchrony with COPD, but that wasn't the population that we reported on. Patients had sepsis, acute respiratory failure from numerous causes. Only nine patients had ARDS. Three patients were post-operative. One patient had cardiogenic pulmonary edema, and six patients were in a were in a coma. And if we look at the approach to mechanical ventilation, respiratory rate on average 20, PEEP on average 6 ml. As you notice, a pretty lung protective tidal volume, 440 ml per kilogram of predicted, bo predicted body weight on average. Peak pressures on average 24, plateau pressures when measurable on average about 20 centimeters of water. So not the most acutely ill patients and clearly not the type of patients that you might expect a lot of asynchrony on because they weren't globally having a lot of increased overall demand. Here, looking at each of those types of asynchrony, first one, short cycle, prolonged cycle, mistriggering, double triggering, and the asynchrony index. This is the whole population of patients over that whole 7,000 hours, the average number of those asynchronies per hour. And as you can see, on average, there's about three to four mistriggers percentage on an hourly basis. The uh, 
asynchrony index was about 4% in these patients over the total length of time of mechanical ventilation. Now, the important thing I should point out is those 7,000 hours represented a number of hours in patients under controlled mechanical ventilation. So this was all breaths, whether they control breaths or spontaneously breathing uh, patients. So the thing that was most disturbing when we looked at multigression analysis and you know, for hospital mortality, we found that there were two variables that made it, tracheostomy and the asynchrony index. So patients with a higher asynchrony index had a higher mortality. Now, I can't tell you that that's cause and effect. Maybe asynchrony index identifies those patients with a higher level of mortality, the more critically ill patients, the ones we have a more difficult time mechanically ventilating, or maybe a high asynchrony index has an effect on patient overall outcome. We clearly don't have the studies today to differentiate between those two. But more and more data that's going to show these type of associations, that asynchrony is not a benign occurrence, and asynchrony has potential outcome effects on the patients we mechanically ventilate. So Bob, what a wonderful demonstration of how important asynchrony is. And boy, is it a problem in the pediatric ICU, as you alluded to. So you've given us a clear taxonomy of types of asynchrony, but let me dive a little deeper on mode asynchrony. What modes do you think are most commonly associated with asynchrony and what modes are the best in terms of eliminating asynchrony? So let me begin with the worst case scenario. And the mode that I think is the worst is SIMV, volume targeted SIMV. So let me begin here with this, uh, with this slide from work by John Marini. And what he looked at was the change in effort as he adjusted the level of SIMV. So we went from 100% assist control to CPAP, measured the amount of work during the uh, mechanical breath as well as during the spontaneous breath. Now one would expect as you decrease the level of mechanical breaths that the amount of work during the spontaneous breath would increase. If we go from 80% to 60 to 40, as the graphic shows, we should see an increased work. What is difficult to explain is why does the work increase during the mechanical breath? It increases an equivalent amount during the mechanical breath as it does during the spontaneous breath. And then take a look at this picture, SIMV. What breaths are mechanical and which breaths are the spontaneous breaths of this patient. We've got diaphragmatic EMG, we've got the EMG, the sternocleidomastoid muscles, and we've got the esophageal pressure graphic. As I look at that, it's pretty tough to figure out which breath is a mechanical breath that's supposedly unloading the patient and which breath is a spontaneous breath in which the patient is doing more effort. Well, the least effort, the third breath in, is in a spontaneous breath. You can't differentiate it. The respiratory center seems unable to flip back and forth between mechanical and spontaneous breaths from a workload perspective at some point around 50% of the breaths. So if you're up near 80%, sure, you're unloading the patient. 
But as you get down to 50, 40, 30 percent of the breast being mechanical, it appears, at least based on everybody who's looked at this, is that the amount of work the patient does during the mechanical breath is equivalent to the amount of work the patient does during the spontaneous breath. So for that reason, unless you add pressure support or something to those spontaneous breaths, these patients tend to be working very hard, whether it's spontaneous or whether it's a mechanical breath. So I think this is probably the approach that is the worst from the perspective of asynchrony. So the best, I'll go back to what I said earlier, Pav and Nava. Why? Because the patient leads with these modes of ventilation. The patient makes the decision and the ventilator follows the lead of the patient. PAV, PAV, as we know, works by responding to the mechanical output of the diaphragm and accessory muscles, and NAVA works by responding to the neural input to the diaphragm, but essentially they function the same way. They unload the patient in a proportional basis, and they improve asynchrony. It's clearly been shown that asynchrony is improved with both of these modes of ventilation. This is from a randomized control trial looking at patients who were sick but capable of triggering the mechanical ventilator. They randomized them to pressure support and to proportional assist ventilation. And not only, as you see, these represent the amount of missed triggers, everything below the, the uh, line, of, line there represents a mistriggered breath. And as is pretty obvious, many more with pressure support than with PAV. But in the 48-hour period of study, more patients had to go back to controlled ventilation in the pressure support group than, could, than needed to in the proportional assist ventilation group. And we can see the same thing in patients who are on NAVA. This is work I did with you know, our friend Pedro in uh, Madrid. He looked at 12 patients in his uh, pediatric ICU who were being maintained on pressure support. We looked at them on pressure support just as it was set by the clinicians. Then we adjusted pressure support as best we could, and then we administered NAVA at a level consistent with the pressure and the work associated with pressure support, and then back to the uh, refined pressure support setting. And as you'll notice, up in the upper left-hand corner, the number of missed triggers the number of auto triggers, the number of double triggers, as well as the asynchrony index, all were significantly improved as we went to NAVA as opposed to uh, pressure support. So I believe that this form of ventilation is the future for assisted ventilation. Obviously, not all patients can be managed with NAVA or proportional assist ventilation. But clearly, any patient you would choose to put on pressure support should be able to do fine on these two modes of ventilation. And the likelihood of the patient being asynchronous is dramatically reduced when we take the control away from the ventilator and give that control back to the patient. Now, problem is we don't have outcome data yet. I know of a number of studies ongoing to look at outcomes from using PAV or NAVA, and I expect in the few, year, few years we will have an answer to the question on whether these modes do, in fact, have a uh, significant effect on overall patient outcome. Wow, Bob, that's a lot of information um, and very helpful information. Um, but let's just stop and have you 
package it all up for us? Can you just summarize how important this all is in a clinical population? I'd summarize by saying, first of all, asynchrony is harmful. It occurs in every patient we mechanically ventilate. Some patients to a greater extent, some patients to a lesser extent. The less control exerted by the ventilator on the patient, the less likely we are to have asynchrony. I didn't get into the data, but we even saw asynchrony in circumstances where patients were sedated. It was blunted to a certain extent, but it did not necessarily minimize the response from the respiratory center. We can minimize asynchrony by the choice of mode, by adjusting the way we deliver mechanical ventilation, but I'm not sure we can totally eliminate it in all patients. It's associated with a longer course of mechanical ventilation, and it clearly, as I've just shown, has at least in, in the 50 patients we looked at, show, showed a association to mortality. Bob, thank you so much for the time you've taken to educate us, share your wisdom, uh, and I really look forward to future collaborations with you. Well, thanks, John. I appreciate it. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. Check out the description box to view the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast. To hear more podcasts like this one, log on to openpediatrics.org.